Hello there. Welcome to Faith and Capital. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. In continuing our Blind Faith series, we are questioning commonly held assumptions and beliefs concerning capitalism itself and capitalist perceptions of our world. These beliefs are either unconsciously internalized, affecting our everyday lived realities and our relationships without our being aware of them, or they are consciously accepted and thought of as common sense. Throughout this series, we want to question how true these common sense beliefs really are. And we're engaging in this questioning and critical reflection because of our remembrance of the Crucified One, who first had to question the way things were and the common sense of the oppressive, exploitative, and exclusive power structures before he realized he needed to seek their transformation. Last week, we questioned the idea that the production of wealth always leads to well-being, that capitalism seeks maximum wealth production for the sake of social harmony. Today's episode is on the belief that capitalism guarantees us a rising tide that lifts all boats. Economic growth, a, a booming market, a rising GDP, ultimately benefits everyone. Well, Let's take a look at the last four decades within the U.S., then we'll talk about winners and losers, and finally, we'll briefly reflect on the sociality of Paul's Christology. Okay, so from the late 40s to the mid-70s, wages and compensation rose relatively in tandem with economic expansion and growth, meaning as the U.S. economy grew, so did the paychecks of workers. Now, that doesn't mean that all people everywhere or even in the U.S. benefited from this equally. But for workers' compensation to relatively rise in tandem with worker productivity sounds outright make-believe when we compare it to what the vast majority of U.S. workers have known these last four-plus decades. Because in the mid-1970s, the relationship between rising worker productivity and worker compensation started to change. And to be clear, when we talk about rising worker productivity, we're talking about the fact that the average worker produces more goods and services, right? More value in less time. So today, production slash non-managerial workers are producing way more value than a worker could a decade ago, five decades ago, a century ago. But that hasn't meant that the majority of workers, their families, and their communities have benefited from this. According to an Economic Policy Institute report, from 1948 to 1973, worker productivity increased over 96%, while, get this, hourly compensation of a typical production non-supervisory worker rose some 91%. Right? So productivity rose 96%, compensation rose 91%. But hey, rising productivity didn't stop in the 70s. From 1973 to 2013, productivity increased another uh, 74%. But the hourly compensation of these workers only rose 9%. So between 1948 and 73, worker compensation rose in tandem with rising worker productivity. I mean, I mean that makes sense, right? But from 1973 and on, while labor has continued to produce more and more value in less and less time, the surplus has not gone to the employees 
actually doing the work. U.S. American low- and middle-income earners since the 70s have not seen their wages rise in tandem with their productivity like the workers did of the mid-20th century. Hmm. So, if workers have increasingly produced more and more value, where has all that surplus gone, if not to the increasingly more productive workers, their families, and their communities themselves? The report continues. Between 1979 and 2013, the average wage of the bottom 90% of earners grew a whopping 15%, while the top 1% of earners saw their average wage rise 138%. In the mid or I'm sorry, in the same period, the 50th percentile median wage worker, right, the worker who made more than half the workforce and less than the other half, saw their wages rise just 6%. That's less than 0.2% per year. The bottom 10th percentile wage was even worse off, as that wage fell a whopping 5%, despite the continual growth. Another report on wage trends between 1979 and 2017. This one by the Congressional Research Service, and it's in 2017 dollars, reported that, With the exception of white women, wages of the bottom 10th percentile fell in real terms for all low-wage worker groups. And by the 10th percentile, they mean the workers who made more than one-tenth of the workforce and less than everybody else. Men's wages at the bottom 10th percentile in general fell by 14.6%, down to $11.54. However, Hispanic males experienced the largest percentage decline, 8.9%, down to $10, followed by a 7.6 decline for white males to $13, and a 6% decline for black males to $10. And while women's wages in the last four decades at the 10th percentile rose by a whopping 1.7%, again, amidst significant rising productivity, white women of the 10th percentile saw their wages rise to $11, Black women at the 10th percentile saw their wages decline to $9.50, and Hispanic women saw a decline to $9. The differences are incredibly important. We can't fully address this four-decade-long wage repression amidst unprecedented profits without addressing the racial and gender disparities. But whether you're a white male or a Hispanic female, the 10th percentile is unlivable, Impoverished people of all genders, races, and ethnicities have more in common with each other than they do with those who employ them, rent to them, and loan to them. But middle-wage workers aren't faring that much better either. Again, while productivity exploded between 1979 and 2017, the same report shows that white males of the 50th percentile median wage, right, the worker who made more than half the workforce and less than the other half, saw a mere 2.5% raise from 2533 to $25.96, a 63-cent raise over 38 years, while both black and Hispanic males saw their wages drop to $18 and $16.83. For female workers of the 50th percentile, whites, blacks, and Hispanics all got raises, but the gender wage gap profoundly remains, as do the racial pay gaps. 
white females of the 50th percentile median wage in 2017 made $21.06, whereas black females made $16.35, and Hispanic females made $15. So, if you put the 50th percentile median wage of Hispanic females, right, $15, next to the 50th percentile median wage of white males, $25.96, the difference is glaring. But again, if the vast majority of workers' wages of all gendered and racialized groups have been repressed for so long, where did all the surplus they made go? The answer to that is obvious. The corporations and businesses who employed all those increasingly productive workers. Inequality.org reports that the average top 0.1% earner makes 188 times that of the bottom 90. In 2017 dollars, the bottom 90 has seen little change in the average paycheck income, from roughly 29,600 in 1979 to 36,200 in 2017. The top 0.1% saw their annual income rise from 622,000 to $2,756,865. But this hasn't meant that we're simply slightly better off. The cost of living, housing, education, health care, and transportation has far outpaced our repressed wages. Fewer and fewer people are ever able to own a home in their lifetime. More and more people are making payments on their house up until retirement. Others are using their retirement money to finally purchase their house. And increasingly, we're seeing the elderly who do, who do own their homes do something called a reverse mortgage in which they sell their homes back to the bank for monthly payments to subsidize the rising cost of living. The wealthiest nation in the world has an estimated 140 million adults and children who are either impoverished or making low wages. These standards are low, people which means that we have tens of millions more who are in rough, if not unlivable, living conditions. That doesn't even include the many who may be better off, but are forced to work their lives away in order to simply make ends meet or avoid the reality of bankruptcy, or an extension of student debt, and even poverty. I thought about extending the same rising tide myth internationally, but I'll save that for another time. For now, we have seen that within the U.S., the unprecedented economic growth, right, the growth of that good old GDP, has not benefited everyone, has not even benefited the majority of people living in the richest nation in the world, let alone the most vulnerable and impoverished. On top of the gender and racial wage disparities that remain, not even mentioning the more significant wealth gaps, the majority of U.S. Americans are economically worse off today than we were 50 years ago. The capitalist assumption that a rising tide lifts all boats does not seem to be true. What is true is that in a capitalist system, there are winners and there are losers. The ceaseless, perpetual, endless economic growth made possible by the employed masses is structurally meant to lift the yachts of the few on the backs of the drowning masses. It is true. Capitalism can be good at creating rising tides. 
But for the many, those tithes are less the fulfillment of human flourishing or individual, communal, and relational well-being, and more an increasingly violent and unbearable storm. Capitalism, as a system, makes winners and losers out of everyone, whether they want to play the game or not. You have no choice. It structurally pits people against each other, whether it's employer against employee, capitalist against capitalist, nation against nation. It is written deep within the system's DNA. For example, look at the capitalist class structure of employer-employee relations. Capitalism structurally concentrates decision-making power in every business. It is by definition anti-democratic. Only a few get to have say in the how, what, and where of production. While, so, and while the many produce the surplus, right, only a few appropriate and distribute the surplus how they see fit. It is hierarchical, exclusive, and essentially authoritarian. And this concentrated power leads to concentrated wealth. And the inequality of wealth is then invested into maintaining and expanding the structural inequality of power, right? It's a cycle. Wealth begets power, power begets wealth, and in a hyper-competitive market, if you have less than your competitor, you are most likely to lose. That's why everyone knows that the rich are getting richer and the rest of us, especially those most impoverished, are getting poor. That is the good old rising tide of capitalist economies. And that's what it will forever do, even if we, say, tax the rich a whole bunch. After the Great Recession of 1929 and WW2, FDR started rolling out the famous New Deal, which included things like a massive federal employment program, uh, unemployment insurance, social security, subsidized housing, of course, all that primarily and exclusively went to white males and the white women in heterosexual patriarchal marriages with those white males. But how did FDR pay for all that in the first place? He taxed the richest elite up to some 91% of their income. And look what the business class did. They convinced us all to erode those laws. They undermine the newly imposed regulations on big business by buying politicians who would roll back regulations and laws that limited corporate power. And now they've nearly completely erased those policies that tried to some degree to redistribute the wealth. Here's a different idea. Don't let employers take the fruits of other people's labor in the first place. Democratize the workplace end the hierarchical employer-employee relations, the capitalist class structure of businesses, right? And replace it with an internally democratic way of organizing the production, appropriation, and distribution of surplus. With capitalism now a global system, the rising tide has not led to the lifting of all boats worldwide. But it hasn't even lifted the masses of boats in the U.S., Many Christian individuals and communities remain committed to the drug called ceaseless upward mobility, the drive to compete harder and accumulate more, no matter the costs for others, and even when that idea has exacerbated their own suffering. Can we not envision another way of being in the world than one which concentrates wealth and power into the hands of the few, while funneling the weight of the world unevenly upon everyone else?
The inerrant sociality of Paul's Christology, I believe, could help us envision an alternative way of being in community, one that fundamentally contradicts the rising tide that lifts few yachts. Not unfamiliar to our society today, there seems to have been a good bit of inequality of power within the early Corinthian church, and it is this inequality that seems to have prompted Paul to write his letter in the first place. The first letter to the Corinthian community is constantly naming and critiquing their internal hierarchies. But the hierarchical structure that was taking hold within this early church also mirrored the power flows existing in the rest of society. So when Paul gets talking about the equality realized in the living body of Christ, surely he was aware that to embody an alternative way of being in community— to practice an alternative way of being in relationship to one another, would have caused problems for the political and economic structures of top-down rule and the many social and cultural norms that were exclusive. And so, when in chapter 12, verse 26, he tells the members of this distorted and hierarchical community that in the body of Christ, quote, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Paul is not only messing with how people in in that community were relating to one another. He is messing with the systems that benefited the Roman and the religious elite at the expense of everyone else. Paul knows that to embody the way of the crucified one is likely to lead to your own execution by state powers. Paul's way of organizing our relationships in this letter starts with the most vulnerable, those who are pushed to the bottom, those who disproportionately shoulder the weight of the community. To have a community built around the praxis of one suffers, all suffers, is to seek healing, restoration, and relational well-being, right? The kingdom of God from the bottom up, not from the top down. And what could this possibly have to do with capitalism? Well, capitalism does not do that. Structurally, it literally does the opposite. It disproportionately funnels power and wealth to the top and forces competitors to win at others' expense. A capitalist economy is not a one-suffer-all-suffer, one-honored-all-rejoice economy. Instead, a capitalist society seeks to enrich and empower the few at the expense and degradation of the many.